Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We wanted to let you know that Olin's first book, What to Do with Worry, is now available on Audible. You can also purchase physical copies where Christian books are sold. Now, here's Olin. All right, John chapter 2 again. If you have your Bibles, let me pray. Lord, thanks for all the ways that you love us and take care of us. Think about just the freedom we have, the technology, the food, uh, and then many more important things like your word so readily accessible to us, good friends and fellowship, uh, the privilege it is to be in ministry, and primarily the privilege it is to know you, salvation, Christ living in us, the hope of glory. I pray these next few minutes together, Lord, give us practical wisdom for how we can go deeper in the basics and we can more and more let the light of Christ shine in us and through us and around us. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, John 2, picking up exactly where we left off. And we're going to look at when Jesus cleanses the temple. But again, it was in front of his disciples. In many ways, it was for his disciples, what they were seeing. So three points, cleansing, interpreting, and believing. So John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Verse 16, And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And what's going on here? You had faithful, devout Jews that would have to come a long distance to go to the Passover. Uh, Under the Old Testament, all the men were supposed to appear in Jerusalem three times a year for a feast. And if you couldn't make it to all of them because you were poor, typically Passover was the one. You tried to make sure you were there. You could bring your own animals, but a lot of times the long journey is really hard, so you'd bring money, you'd buy an animal there. Uh, But it turned into a money-making racket because there were certain coins they had to use. Maybe it was Jewish money or uh, they cared about how much silver was in the coin, all these kind of things. And so there was an exchange rate, but they were taking them for everything they could. One commentator said it would be the equivalent of, you know, you, you trade in five cents of whatever maybe your Roman or Greek currency was. and I mean, Excuse me, you change in four dollars to get five cents back. They were being taken advantage of. They, they had totally missed the mark. And so Jesus goes in, probably got one of the ropes that somebody was tying up a donkey or an animal, turns it into a whip, went in there, cleaned house, drove them out. Keep your finger here in John 2, but flip back quickly to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. Isaiah 29, verse 13. And the Lord said, Because His people draw near Me with their mouth and honor Me with their lips while their hearts are far from Me, and their fear of Me is a commandment taught by men. And so Jesus is going to use this verse later against the Pharisees. But there were a lot of people that were going through the outward motions of religion, drawing near God with their lips but not really with their hearts. And still today in America, probably even on the college campus and some places we serve, we have people that are these nominal Christians that are going through the outward motions, but it's not real. And a lot of times our disciples, there may be people that we pick up in campus outreach ministry that are more coming to our Bible studies 
more because their mom is kind of telling them to. You need to get involved in some kind of church or something. Well, oh, well, there's a Bible study right here in the freshman dorm. That's easier to go through. And so part of what we're trying to do is cleanse them. We're, we're trying to cleanse the sin out of their life. And that's one way to think about discipleship. What are we doing? We're trying to cleanse sin out of their life. Okay? It's got to be a part of discipleship. Now, uh, we don't use a whip. We use the word. Okay, so don't, this is not an encouragement to start beating your disciples. If they do stuff wrong, even no matter how much you may feel like beating them at times, the way that we do cleansing in the lives of our disciples is interpreting. We're interpreting the scriptures for them. We're helping them apply it. So look at verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And this is a quote from Psalm chapter 69, verse 9. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign did you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now think about what's going on here. The disciples see this. They've probably never seen anything like this. I mean, John the Baptist was a passionate guy. He was pretty radical. I don't know if you remember when the Pharisees came out to him just to observe his baptism. And he basically rebukes him. He's like, who warned you guys to come, you brood of vipers? Uh, he, he, was, he was not a very priestly guy. But they never met a prophet like Jesus. I mean, literally takes a whip, violently driving out all these money changers, just taking charge of the whole situation. But then they start thinking. These were devout men. They were looking for the Messiah. There's this Old Testament psalm, this prophecy that the Messiah, the zeal for God's house, the zeal for God's name and people, his glory, it'll consume him. And just see, this is Jesus. So they're meditating on Scripture. Okay? Now notice what the Jewish leaders do. They come, and they didn't necessarily say, you had no right to do that. They didn't necessarily say, hey, what we were doing was a good thing. They knew what they were doing was wrong. And so they don't, they don't say... We were right, you were wrong. They just said, what gives you the right? It's like when my kids were younger, and I may say, hey, I need to check something on your phone, and I find something, and I go talk to them about it. They're like, Dad, you don't have a right to check my phone. I'm like, oh, yes, I do, right? I pay for the phone. I do whatever I want to with the phone. I'll throw it out the window if I want to. But they, they didn't try to protest what I've been doing on my phone is right. They just tried to protest you violated my privacy, Dad. And I'm like, you don't have any privacy in this house. Okay, you have privacy later in life. Certainly, I mean, you do have some privacy. Take that back. But you don't have privacy on your phone. All right. They were convicted. They're under conviction. So Jesus, it's weird what he does. Look at what he does. Okay? He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, when Jesus said that, do you think Jesus knew they were going to think, oh, he must be talking about his body and the resurrection? Or do you think he knew they were going to be confused? He knew they were going to be confused. Why, why did he do this? Because he knew these guys were playing games. They weren't really serious. They weren't hungry disciples. They weren't really asking, teach us, Jesus. Give us wisdom. We're so hungry. They were trying to play games. So there was a sense in which he's like, I, I'm not going to throw my pearls before swine. He said something to obviously confuse them. And really, somebody wiser than me, I don't remember who it was, though, that said, you give law to the humble, you give grace. You give law to the proud, you give grace to the humble. When you have somebody coming to you and they're humble and they're asking questions, be very gracious. When somebody's coming in more of kind of an accusatory, arrogant, self-righteous, stuck-up way, certainly that's what the Pharisees, the religious leaders, did with Jesus. He just kind of 
put the law back on them in a sense to show them, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You're not worthy to be Christian leaders. Now, um, so much of good discipleship is about taking Scripture and interpreting it for people. The the religious leaders who aren't hungry, they're going to come away from this thing more confused. But the disciples who were hungry, remember that's who we're at, we're after the hungry disciples, they're going to come away from this interaction with more insight. Because Jesus, with his life, with his words, he was, he, he was interpreting the Scripture in a way that we came because he was fulfilling it and living it out. But so much of good discipleship, what are you doing? You're trying to get sin out of their life by interpreting Scripture. Let me just give a practical example. I had a senior guy that I'd been discipling for a while and had a good conversation with him. I said, listen, I, you're, you're not doing terrible. I think you're, and, and again, I've got years invested in this guy. So this would not be the first conversation I'd have with a student. This was senior year. We've been together for a while. I said, but man, you just don't really seem passionate to me. You, you don't seem sold out. You don't seem like you're really centering your life around doing everything for the glory of God. You know, at first he's not, not defensive, but a little bit more kind of maybe gamesmanship like this. Going, uh, what, are, what are you talking about? You know, I, and I said, well, take 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, do it all for the glory of God. I said, would you say that you think that way about your life? I'm not saying you do it perfectly, but are you, would you say that you live your whole life for the glory of God? And again, kind of him and Hall, kind of, well, I don't know, but does anybody really do that? And So I said, well, let me tell you this. I said, um, when this guy come to college, he had basically wanted to get into fitness, and he wanted to spend all his time getting in shape. And so he started reading all this stuff and watching YouTube videos and measuring the food he was eating. And it's like all of his free time, not all, but a lot of his free time went to cooking good food, thinking about all that, going to the gym all the time, working out, and he'd gotten in a lot better shape. And I said, I want you to think about how passionate and zealous you are about physical fitness. It's not your job. You don't get paid for that. It's like a hobby. But you're passionate about it. You've seen a lot of progress in that area, right? And he's like, yes. I said, is that the way you are with your spiritual life? Is there that kind of devotion? Is there a kind of hunger? I'm not talking about perfection, but a zeal to really grow holistically. And he's like, no, there's not. Now, think about what I was doing. I was trying to take 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, one of the most basic verses in the whole Bible, right? I mean, does it get more 101 basic than 1 Corinthians 10.31? I mean, I, it's, it's hard. Other than like, God exists, right? In the beginning was God. I don't know that you can get any more basic than whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. But I was trying to personalize it for this guy. I was making observations, and I had the relational depth with him that I could say that and it wouldn't just be totally offensive. And I was trying to take that biblical principle and screw it down into his life in a very practical way. Let me say this, and I'm going to come back to this later. Most of the students that we are discipling, they are not good at sitting and listening in a Bible study or a campus weekly meeting or a New Year's conference or beach project, whatever it is, hearing biblical truth and principles taught and then going out on their own and coming up with the application. And in my experience, most Christians aren't good at that. That's the rare few Christians that can just hear kind of biblical truth taught and say, I'll figure out the applications on my own. Most of us need somebody to help us figure out the best applications. And that's so much what good discipleship is. 
What does all this result in? Again, deeper believing. Look at verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Just a couple thoughts here. If you do campus ministry long enough and you're doing small group discipleship, at some point somebody's going to accuse you of being cliquish or being elitist or something like that. And listen, maybe you are. I don't know. Maybe you are and you need to repent. But just because you say yes to I'm going to disciple these girls and no, I'm not going to disciple these girls, doesn't mean that you're sinful. There can be right reasons to do that. And you know the main reason I know it? Because Jesus did it. And it's like anytime somebody's trying to be more spiritual than Jesus, that's a bad thing. Right, so if they're like, well, I just, I just take all takers. It's like, well, I just want to be like Jesus. And Je- no, there was a difference. Jesus had X-ray vision to see into people's hearts, right, and to know who was real, who was fake. We don't always have that, but God has given us a brain, and He's given us the Holy Spirit, and He's given us His Word, and He wants us to use those things to be discerning. Listen to this quote by Matthew Henry. It was said of the scholars of Pythagoras, and I think that's the mathematician who came up with the Pythagorean theorem, if any of y'all remember that, that his precepts seemed to freeze in them until they were 40 years old, and then they began to thaw. So this saying of Christ revived in the memories of his disciples when he was risen from the dead. Do you understand what Matthew Henry's saying there? You had this great mathematician that was so smart. It was like when he was teaching his young pupils. It was kind of like they're writing it down, but they're not getting it. And then at some point, like when they were 40, it was like their brains were mature enough. It was like, ah, oh, it finally makes sense. Have you ever had something like that happen to you spiritually? Like you hear a sermon and you're like, something about this seems right. Like it's resonating. I know it's true. But exactly what it means, I still can't really articulate it. And then after a few more years of experience, it's like the lights come on. If you are ever discouraged in your discipleship... And if you hang around long enough, you will be. If you ever discouraged in your parenting, and you don't even have to hang around long in that one, just get started and you'll be discouraged. Think about how many times Jesus' disciples were clueless. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Uh, I think he's mad we didn't bring bread. I mean, just they were all the time missing it. But then after the resurrection and the Spirit fell, it's like it all clicked. And guys, part of college ministry is like, I'm just taking, hopefully, big pieces of spiritual truth like a timber and just putting it into the oven of their heart and then hoping at some point the fire's going to fall. And I hope it falls sooner rather than later. But sometimes it won't click. I mean, I've had guys that just seemed like they were the bare minimum. Like they're, they're the guy on the, on the bottom end of the discipleship group. And you're like, ah, oh, maybe I shouldn't have invited this guy in. But he keeps showing up. He's a nice guy and he's kind of fun, so, you know, we'll keep him around. And then three or four years after college, they catch fire and they're doing great. So, but I love the passage in Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says, Do not grow weary of doing good. For if we persevere in due season, we will reap. Just keep sowing to the Spirit. So then, As often as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith.
Just keep pouring into them. Keep investing in them. Had another guy back at UNA named Patrick. He prayed to receive Christ with me one day, eating lunch, after lunch, sitting in the car. And then back in the year 2000, we had a New Year's conference where we brought literally all campus outreach people from around the world together. It was awesome. And we had John Piper. It's the first time we ever had Piper come speak at one of our things. And after New Year's conference, Patrick was like, man, I really don't think I became a Christian last fall. I really think it happened during one of Piper's sermons, you know, up in Atlanta. And I said, how dare you? That's not true. I led you. No, of course I didn't say anything stupid like that. I'm like, praise the Lord. I, I don't care when you came to Christ. I'm just glad you came to Christ. How many of you would say I have a double-clutch testimony? And I have one. It's like, I think I became a Christian when I was seven, but it may have not been until I was 15. And I'm really not sure. But it was either seven or 15. Anybody else have a testimony like that? All right. That's normal in the Christian faith. And part of what happens sometimes is the person really did come to Christ at 15 and not 7. Sometimes it's like, no, they really came to Christ at 7 or whenever it was for them. But then it's like at age 15 they really repent of some really big sin that had been tripping them up. Or they have a deeper grace awakening, right? They read some R.C. Sproul book and they're like, I never really understand grace until I read R.C. Sproul. Okay. Sometimes it's just they really get plugged into really good intensive discipleship. They never had any training. They, nobody was putting logs on the fire of their heart. They couldn't grow. So my, my point, again, so much of what we're going to talk about in the next couple of days, there's going to be a repetition because we need to go deeper in the basics. Good discipleship, I'm taking them deeper in the basics. I'm taking them to deeper and deeper and deeper levels of faith. Max Stiles, you all familiar with him? He was a Baptist church planner in Dubai, and then I think that was too easy, so he went to Iraq for a while. Um, I think he's back now. But he had a quote. I think he has four children as well, and we had him speak at a New Year's conference one time, and I was talking to him, I have four children. He said, never trust your children's profession of faith until they have a chance to be tested by the world, the flesh, and the devil. I think that's really good. Now, that doesn't mean I tell, you know, if you have your six-year-old predecessor Christ with you, you're like, this isn't real. You've never been tested. No, don't. Encourage him. But don't be like, well, I, can, I don't have to parent him anymore. He's in the fold. Everything will be fine. <laughs> and it's the same with your disciples. Just because the person prayed to receive Christ or they had a great summer on Beach Project. I bet we all know stories. I know we all know stories of people that seemed like they were doing so well and... Now they're not, they don't even profess to be Christians, right? Don't let that discourage you because even Jesus had Judas, right? So sometimes that can happen like, it must have been I was a terrible disciple or we had a bad beach project. Maybe, maybe not. Jesus had the best D group of all times and one of his guys turned out really bad. Not Jesus' fault. This is a real spiritual battle. And Satan is in it to do as much damage as he can. And he's pretty darn effective at it. Um, Go back to Psalm chapter 69. Let's just look at this verse in its original context. Psalm chapter 69. Verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, 
and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now, it's a long psalm. We won't take the time to go read the whole thing, but here's the context. David is saying, hey, God, I love you, but I'm down here on planet Earth surrounded by all these people that hate you. And there's a sense in which these people, they can't get directly at you, but when I tie myself to you because I love you and I'm your king and I'm your servant, they can get at me. And so all the hate, the reproaches they have for you, they fall on me. So I'm so zealous for you, yes, it's consuming me, but not just because I'm over here in the corner in the tabernacle having a worship experience that's really passionate. I'm so zealous for you, I'm so committed to you, that your enemies see how committed I am to you, and thus I get hurt by being committed to you. You understand the logic of the text? And you see how that applies to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because finally, the haters of God, they literally could get their hands on him. And the zeal for God's glory would literally consume him on the cross. I don't want to do this, Father. But I'm willing to do this if this is the only way that we can save these people. And in a very, 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 very secondary way, that verse is true of us guys. To the degree that you tie yourself to God, to the mission of God, to the, to the movement of God, to the discipling of God's people, you're going to get hurt. And if, if your mindset is, and maybe you haven't said this out loud, but if you've thought about it, you know, I'd really like to, uh, I'd like to do some nice, sweet ministry, but I just I want it to be like a Hallmark card. And I want everybody to be nice to me and smile at me and say nice things to me and it go wonderful. Give up. It doesn't work that way. Start a Bible study when you get to heaven, and then it can be all fun and frills. Down here, it's war. And there will be people that hate you. And the ones that will really hurt you will not be the atheistic, antagonistic student coming after you. That hurts a little bit. It'll be the one that was in ministry with you for four years and you thought you were best friends and then they abandon the faith and they say you're a cult leader or you're a narcissistic leader or blah, 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 blah. And then they won't return your phone calls when you try to reach out to them in love. You understand? Why am I saying all this? Because it's true. Because if it hasn't happened to you yet, enjoy it while it lasts. And when it comes, I don't want you to be shocked. And I don't want you to think it's something wrong with you, that you did something wrong. Again, anytime there's something hard in life, it's good to stop and take inventory. God, what could have I done different? What could have I done better? What do I need to learn? That's wisdom. But to always assume, well, it must all be my fault. That's not wise. That's Satan. That's condemnation. The last thing I just want you to know, Christ was willing to be consumed with hell so that I could be saved, so that you could be saved. And part of our calling and linking ourselves to Him is we're willing to be seemingly consumed at times by the hatred, the venom of people former professing believers, maybe still professing believers, who really at some level they're mad at God, but they can't get at God. But they can get at us. And this is part of the cost of discipleship. And we need to be willing to bear it for the sake of the third generation and for the sake of the glory of God. So, let me pray again.
Father, ministry is hard. I just pray that you would give us a lot of grace to persevere through the hardness, to persevere through the lean years, to keep sowing when it looks like the reaping is never coming, and to keep sowing and reaping even when there's a lot of weeds in the garden. And it's hard to know, is, is this a, a good tree or a bad tree? And even sometimes the good tree turns around and bites us and hurts us. I pray that you would give all of us such a fullness of the Spirit, a love for you, a passion for you, a zeal for you, a sense of shock and awe at how much you were willing to be consumed for us, Lord Jesus, that we're willing to take these secondary wounds and persevere by your grace for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.